Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Amen. It's good to see you. I invite you to please take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you uh, somewhere, or you can take your phone or your device and go to esvbible.org. It's esvbible.org, and you can find Ecclesiastes chapter 7 right there. Well, we're back on the bus with happy old Solomon and Ecclesiastes. If you're new with us today, we've been saying how Ecclesiastes has kind of been a tour bus ride through life under the sun, where Solomon is taking us along this journey, and he's pointing out life, showing us what matters, showing us what doesn't matter. And in today, Solomon gives us in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, he gives us another collection of sayings that is unlike most of the book. Most of the book, he's got kind of this long uh, kind of essay that he's saying, well, this little section is more like the book of Proverbs, where it's a random, it looks like a random collection of sayings, a random collection of tweets, but they really have really one aim, one target where he's headed, where he's going to compare and contrast things on this earth. He's going to pull back the curtain on things that we think are always good, and he says, they're not always good. And he pulls back the curtain on things that we think are always bad, and he says, no, they're not always bad. Sometimes they are good. And we misjudge life under the sun. We wrongly value certain things under the sun. And things that we assume are true are not true. And Solomon wants to disciple us and all of these things. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 7. And as we do every week, as we read the word of the living God, let's stand in honor of God's word if you're able. And beginning in verse 1, we hear the Spirit of Christ say to us, A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Vapor, havel, fleeting. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's pray together. Holy Father, would you help us now? Would you help us now by the power of the risen Christ? And would the Holy Spirit be with us now as we are handling and hearing the sword of the Spirit? 
Some of us now, Lord, we need the sword of the Spirit to combat spiritual warfare and to tear down lofty opinions and to take, take captive every thought unto obedience to Christ. And some of us now, Lord, we need the sword of the Spirit to cut through the thoughts and intentions of our heart and to fillet us open so that we would be face-to-face with you in your word. So meet us now, Lord. Help us. And it's in your mighty resurrected name that we pray. Amen. You know, mixed signals and mixed messages are known to happen when you go overseas or if you go to another culture, especially if you go on a mission trip. Like I've, in Thailand, it's very rude for you to point your foot at somebody. If you're sitting with your legs crossed and you got your foot up and my foot's pointing at Robert right now, that's very offensive in, in Thailand. Or if I were to go and pat someone on the head, that's, that's very uh, condemning or just like, hey, I'm a lot better than you kind of thing. And so you expect that. Texas, Thailand, yeah, there's going to be some mixed messages that we don't mean to seem to one another. But even in the United States, this happens. I was up in New England not too long ago, and it's very polite and decent to say ma'am down here. Not so much up there. Uh, they think it's very rude that, they're like, what, you think I'm some old lady and call me ma'am or whatever? Like, no, I'm just being nice. Uh, not up there. So you kind of expect that. Okay, Texas, Thailand, yeah. Texas, New England, okay, yeah. But you don't always expect this in your own household, these mixed messages to happen. Now, my wife, Natalie, she's from Lake Charles, Louisiana, uh, which is kind of its own country on its own. It's a very bizarre place. And in our first year of marriage, we ran across a few mixed messages. Number one, one day I'm sitting on the couch and she asked me, hey, would you pass the broom? I don't have a problem with that. Pause the TV. I get up. She's at the sink doing some dishes. I go into the pantry. I grab the broom. I grab the dustpan. I go, here you go. <laughs> she goes, what are you doing? Everything you asked me to do, pass you the broom. No, you need to pass the broom. I know. Here. Apparently, in her land, where she's from, that means, as we say in Texas, you need a sweep. It's not, will you pass me the broom? Will you move the broom around on the floor? Okay, whatever. That's not to say one's better than the other, although I think we all know which one's better than than the other. (laughs) It's just culture. It's how she grew up. It's how I grew up. One's not better than the other. It's just our messages got mixed up. And when it comes to life under the sun, we are hearing mixed messages. We hear mixed messages about the exact same news event. One channel gives you one thing, flip it one channel, whoa, totally different story. Either way, you scroll through your Facebook, you're seeing all kinds of mixed messages and and hot takes and videos and, and pictures with weird text on it and pictures of Jesus crying that if you don't share this, you don't love him, like all these kinds of bizarre, dumb things being put on the internet. And many of us who grew up in the Bible Belt, we think God blesses the people that he's happy with, and he allows suffering to the people he's upset with, which is exactly what Job's friends believed. They thought that exact same thing. God blesses you when, when you're, you and him are on good terms. He sends suffering when you've wronged him. And they're thinking, Job, you obviously did something. Saying, I didn't do anything. If a suffering comes into our life, we think, well, we must have done something. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not tithing enough or whatever. If that's true, if we think that way, that is a heretical prosperity gospel just by another name. 
Solomon just showed us in chapter 6 two weeks ago that riches and comfort and prosperity, these are not always signs of God's blessing. And now he just showed us in chapter 7 that adversity and suffering are not always signs of God's anger. Solomon's saying, between these two chapters, chunk the mixed messages you think you intuitively know about life under the sun and listen to wisdom, listen to reality. So what's real? Verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 7. Verse 1, Solomon says, A good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death than the day of birth. So he's going to, throughout this whole section, he's comparing and contrasting, putting two things up, and usually we think one's better than the other, but he wants to show us, no, this is actually better. So a good name, better than precious ointment. You picture a guy in, in Israel, he's, he's putting on his ointment. Some guys would think this would be, you're going to go out, you're going to a party, maybe you've got like a date, you're going to go to like a kosher restaurant, and you're getting your precious ointment on. Or some guys think maybe it's talking about funeral, that if you're very wealthy, man, you had very, your body was very nicely prepared. Well, either way, Solomon's point is this. What's more important to you, your reputation or your cologne? What's more important, your character or the name on the car you drive? Because you could just use precious ointment. He's just giving this pretty specific example for a whole category of things that we put into our lives, things that we value, thing, how we want to look, how we want to smell. So clearly, we know, yeah, of course, my name, my reputation, my character is way more important than my cologne. But Solomon's point is that people will often put more stock in what they can put on the, in their bodies and on their bodies than who they really are. He's comparing good living with a good name because people and we will often sacrifice our names, our reputations, our character so we can get what we think to be the good life. So we could get that car, so we could get that promotion, we could get that job, we could get that relationship. Who cares if you smell good and look good when you walk into a room and yet no one wants you in that room? Yeah, you can leave your perfume behind when you leave the room, but who cares if everyone rolls their eyes when you leave? The tragedy of life under the sun is that people will sell out their character for these precious ointments, for a nicer car, for a bigger house. People will compromise who they are, their name, for prestige and power and for the promotion. And look, I'm, I'm a big NBA fan. I love basketball. And this last week, I listened to a podcast with uh, Joey Crawford. He's one of the veteran referees in the NBA. And he looks exactly like Barry Pett. Exactly. <laughs> Barry, stand up so people can, if they don't know where you are. Come on, man. Okay, he's there waving. That's your Halloween costume, bro. <laughs> that is it. And what Joey talked about on this podcast is the grueling work that goes into being a referee. How much you have to give up. And I never thought about it. That you have to travel and travel and travel. Because you're not just refing games in your hometown. You're going all over the United States and into Canada. He talked about how much he had to give up and how he would have to miss Christmas. He'd have to miss Thanksgiving. He'd have to miss holidays. He'd have to miss birthdays. He'd have to miss his daughter's programs. He'd have to miss all kinds of things. And the guy doing the interview said, man, was this hard on your family? I imagine it had to be a lot of stress. And he said, oh, yeah, it was a lot. And it caused a lot of strain. I, I had to have conversations with my kids as they got older and had to work some things out and apologize and get it together. But he said, this was my dream. It's, it's just what I lived for. 
being an NBA ref was the precious ointment to him, that he was willing to sacrifice his name, put that in jeopardy among his family, his character, his reputation among his kids. But then you've got baseball player Adam LaRoche, who gave up playing for the Chicago White Sox, who the season before brought his son with him into the clubhouse every game, was with his young son all the time. And the team's front office said, hey, this next season, we want you to kind of dial back how much you bring uh, your son around the team. We just want you to focus more, yada, yada. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be away from my son. So he retired, left $14 million on the table. $14 million so he could be with his son. You can't put a price tag on what matters most. What precious, precious ointments are you elevating in your life? What precious ointments are you chasing? What comforts and pleasures and what things, what good things? These, I mean, that $14 million is not a bad thing. Having a job that you like, like Joey Crawford, is not a bad thing. But we can turn those into bad things when we think these precious ointments are better than our name and our reputation. So Solomon says, stop it. Your name, your legacy, your character are more important. And look at what he says. He proves it even more in the end of verse 1. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And we'll talk more about this in a second. But Solomon's just saying your obituary is more important than your baby pictures. Because it's in that obituary, in that eulogy, at that funeral, where your life is examined and people get up and talk about your life. And really, it's laid bare what you lived for. Your baby pictures prove nothing. And we get excited when babies walk. That's cool. But if that's all we're still talking about at your funeral, you didn't live for much. He was a good walker. <laughs> at, at that day of death, we realize what's significant, what matters. And look at verse 2. He goes even further into thinking about the day of death in funerals. Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning and they go into the house of feasting. I know there's a movie out there called Wedding Crashers, where these guys just go and crash and party at these weddings. Solomon says, no, there should be a movie called Funeral Crashers. It's better to be in the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. Why, Solomon? For this is the end of all mankind. It's where we all headed, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. I thought laughter was the best medicine. No. Sorrow, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth and laughter. These verses right here, this is why I say, as a pastor, I would rather officiate 100 funerals than one wedding. I'm not morbid. I'm just realistic. No one is really listening to me at a wedding. No one cares what I'm saying. I'm preaching the gospel. No one cares. Uh, the bride and groom, they're not listening to me. They're thinking about all kinds of other stuff that's going on. Everyone's looking at the flower girl, the ring bear, bridesmaids. <laughs> oh, so sweet. You know, no one's listening to me. I'm just there. People are trying to take blurry pictures with their phone and just the whole time, no, wondering how long till we eat. No one's listening to the preacher. But at a funeral, everyone's listening, especially if it's open casket. The whole meeting, just everyone gets turned down a notch. Very somber, quiet. Weddings are a party. Funerals are pastoral counseling. 
You've never had a life-altering conversation at a party. But you've had your life changed over counseling, over one-on-one conversations. It's better to be at a funeral, Solomon says, because we are faced with the reality that this is where we're all headed. It's better to go to the house of mourning, verse 2, for this is the end of all mankind. Death has a way of sobering you, making you see what matters most. For the living will take it to heart, will lay it to heart. This is where we're headed. This is where we're all going. That open casket, it is a living, meta- not living, it's a dead metaphor for you. This is where I'm headed. We're all headed for the box. And if you knew you only had one week to live, I doubt you would say, hmm, one week, huh? You want to go to Redbox, KFC? You know? No. You would go, it's time. It's time to do what really matters. I'm going to be with friends. I'm going to be with family. I'm going to, I'm going to tell my friends and family members that, about Jesus. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going, to, so I'm going to be singing and ready. I'm going to be ready to go into eternity. Eternity gets larger. And you begin to think about what Paul says, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You begin to really feel it. You begin to really believe it because you know you're on the edge of it. When he says, again in Philippians, that to be with Christ is far better. We know death really is better because of where it takes us, as Paul tells us in Romans 14. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. So Christ died in our place for our sins. And then he lived again. He rose again from the dead. Why? That he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. We die to the Lord. It's good to grieve. It's not unspiritual to cry. Jesus cried at the death of his friend Lazarus, but he did not grieve as one who had no hope. And we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We know that since Jesus died for our sins and since Jesus rose again from the dead, that we too will rise with him. So when you're at a funeral or you hear of the passing of someone that you know and that you love, don't ignore it. Don't soften the blow. Solomon says, take it to heart. That's verse 2. The living will lay it to heart. Don't, we are prone to when things get like really serious and, man, this is heavy, we can dilute that with distractions, with food or laughter or with entertainment or cleaning or just busyness or work. Solomon says, no, no, no. Take it to heart. If you go to a funeral and you don't leave changed even a tiny bit, you missed it. You hear the passing of someone you know, someone you love, and nothing, nothing happens in your heart, nothing like, man, life is but a vapor. As the book of James says, you, you were just missed. You missed it. So Solomon says, let it hit your heart. And it'll bring you to the point of saying, don't waste your life. Don't chase the precious ointments. Don't chase the vapor. Don't chase the steam. Don't chase the vanity. As he says in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. That it is through sadness your heart can be made glad. Glad in the right things. Glad in the things that don't get destroyed by moth and rust. That You get dialed back into the right things. You get realigned with God and with his glory and his gospel and what is eternal and really what matters most. And it's verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Wisdom is found there. 
but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Wisdoms can be found in the funeral home. Foolishness avoids the funeral home. It's too real. It's, it's too much. All the funerals I've been to, I've never seen one person take a duck face selfie at a funeral. It's too real. It's too somber because there's not a lot of fakeness going on. There's no superficial living going on at the gravesite. Solomon's telling us, look, the unexamined life is the wasted life. The unexamined life is the foolish life. I don't know what it is about men and going to the doctor. I don't know a single guy that's like, oh, I love going to the doctor. I don't know a single guy that loves going to the dentist. I know a handful of people who can say, I haven't been to the dentist since I've been married. And that's been like 10 years. You're probably thinking too, ooh, I haven't been to the dentist in a while either. Why? And usually they say, I know they're going to tell me something's wrong. I don't want to go in and hear you have a cavity in all of your teeth. <laughs> we don't want to face the music. I know something's wrong. I'm just going to avoid it. Yeah, my back's killing me. My arm's really hurting. I can barely walk up the stairs. I'll just take some Tylenol. I'll be okay. I'll put some Windex on it. I'll be fine. You know, like all, the, all this kind of stuff. Listen, it's, ab- it's not abnormal to want to avoid correction, but it's Christian to receive it. That's what he's saying in verse 5. Verse 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity, vapor, havel, steam. It's not our natural reaction to want to be told we're doing something wrong. That we have sin that we don't see. Or that we had a tone with the kids that we didn't realize. That we did kind of lie when we said that and our spouse tells us, hey, that wasn't totally true what you said. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise. None of us really believe that, though, because we, we get defensive. We bow up. I go, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Every time I'm rebuked by a wise man, by a friend, by a book, by a sermon, by the Bible, by my wife, it's always painful for a second or minutes, hours, but it brings wisdom and it brings more faithful walking with Jesus. And Solomon says, hear it. It is better for a wise man, it's better to, for a man to hear. That word means same as obey. To hear it and to obey it and to heed it and to do it. As Solomon says in Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is Stupid. One of the few times the Bible says, you're stupid. You hate reproof, it's stupid. So you despise when your spouse brings something up? Here's a verse for you. You know, like when your friends kind of bring something like, hey, man, I was wondering about this. Forrest Gump and Solomon agree. Stupid is as stupid does. Hear and heed correction from that friend, from that brother or sister in Christ, from your spouse. Wisdom is there, and you can laugh it off. You can be like, oh, please, it's nothing. I was having a good time. We're just, you know, keeping it up. It's all right. And Solomon says, verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. you got to be serious sometimes. It's like he's talking about if you ever had like a burn pile, you're doing s'mores, and you throw in like thorns or these really like really thin, dried out things, and I think a better analogy for us to think about is if we see it, if you ever burned a Christmas tree, it's awesome. Like an old Christmas tree, take it out back and light that thing on fire. 
it is loud and it's a big flame and it's fast and it's dangerous. That's what he's saying about the crackling of thorns under a pot. They're making a lot of noise. It's really loud, but it's gone. And it's dangerous. Just like that Christmas tree. It's loud. It's whoa, cool. And it's gone like that, and it's really dangerous. So is laughter when dangerous and serious matters are at stake. In verse 8, what do you, where's he taking us? Kind of what he said at the beginning. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The end of a thing, I love this, is better than the beginning. This is so true. Starting a project is one thing. Seeing it through to the end is another. In our garage right now for over two years now, two years, there is a piece of wood. It's actually three pieces of wood that I've somehow managed to actually stay together into one piece of wood with aluminum letters laying on top of it that spell Oliver. And I wanted to put all this together and hang it up in his room before he was born. He'll be three in November. And not making any movement on it. I had good intentions, got it all together. I got those, got those three pieces of wood to make one, but then I couldn't figure out how to get those aluminum letters to all be even because they all had different nail holes and it got all out of control. Then I couldn't figure out how can I hang this in his room? It's so heavy without it crushing him over his crib. Like, ah, forget it now. It's just in the garage. Here we are. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. You know, marriage vows, they're not impressive. Because 50% of Americans don't keep them anyways. And nor do a lot of Christians. Not impressed by vows, not impressed by pictures, not impressed by a big fancy wedding. What's impressive is when suffering hits, when sickness and in health and richer or poor hits, and they're both 80 watching Wheel of Fortune holding hands in their wheelchairs. That's amazing. Because the end of a thing is better than the beginning. There's a reason why when we hear someone, this couple's been married 50 years, there's a standing ovation. Wow, that's awesome. This couple's been married five. Okay, cool. Oh, good for you. That's that's great. I'm going to talk to 50. It's easy to brag about starting something, but it really doesn't matter until we finish it. As Douglas Wilson says in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, the adversity of seeing a thing through is far better than the pleasure of bragging about something before it's done. The adversity of seeing a thing through is far better than the pleasure of bragging about something before it's done. And this hit me hard this week. I was so convicted by this verse. I'm I'm taking biblical Hebrew right now, Old Testament Hebrew, for starting all of my PhD studies. And I've gotten a lot of nice encouragement from many of you and friends and my wife just about going for it. And and it's easy to feel good about starting something. Like, okay, yeah, I'm on, the, I'm on the track. Here we go. PhD stuff is so cool. But guys, I want to quit every week. Every single week, our first class, I came home and said, I think I want to quit. So I told my wife. She goes, do it. I'm like, no, you're not supposed to tell me that. <laughs> you know, I was like, I want you home more. Let's like, we can play more games and you know, watch movies and stuff. I wanted to quit every week. It's the hardest thing I've ever studied. And I have to take two semesters. This is the first one. Any fool can start something under the sun, but it's the wise who finish it, not quit out of laziness. We know, there's, we know there's time to tear down stones. We saw that in chapter three. We know there's time to stop things, but there's also, we stop things for the wrong reasons sometimes. Our world, 
Our world thinks anger and pride are, are really what fuel the world, are really what makes the world go around, what really helps us get stuff done. Solomon says, no, it's the other way. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit. The patient. So we need patience. It's better than being proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. How do we make it to the end of a thing? Patience. How do we make it to the end of a thing? Not anger. How do we make it to the end of a thing? Not pride. He doesn't say never get angry. He says don't be quick to get angry. And you know those T-shirts that you can see at the mall or you see people wearing? Sometimes I have no idea why anyone wears this. But it says, I'm with stupid, and I have an arrow pointing, like people, like people next to him or whatever. Solomon says, the guy who's quick to be angry, he should wear a shirt that says, I'm with stupid, and pointing it to him. For the fool is quick to get angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. The short-fused man should wear that shirt, I'm a fool. Solomon says, look, anger is addictive. It's therapeutic. It's toxic. When you get angry and you let it out, oh, man, it does feel good, the wrong kind of good. Anger takes up residence in our heart. It moves it. It lodges. It leeches into the heart of fools. This is why Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. For then you give opportunity to the devil. And then he talks about bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander being put away from us. Do you, quick, do you have a quick short fuse? You should have a short fuse with your short fuse. It, it should be cut, gone, bye. Do small things set you off? Like, look, we live in a city with six million people. We're going to have traffic. If you get mad in traffic, that's your own fault. You're someone else's traffic too, okay? You know who else gets set off by small things? Children and chihuahuas. I like dogs, but those things, they are loud and annoying and bark at everything. And if you have chihuahuas, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just reminding you of what you already know, okay? <laughs> they are obnoxious. They have small dog syndrome. An angry man, Solomon says, he has proud man syndrome. A man that's quick to be angry, proud man syndrome. How dare things not go my way? This is a child. How dare you not do what I wanted? How dare you cross me? How dare things not pan out the way I think they're best? But we all face that same silly, childish thought. It's verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Oh, man, the good old days. How can we go back there? How come, how come the 80s were better? Go look at your hair in the 80s. Your clothes, if you had hair in the 80s, so I mean, 60s, 70s. Go back. Look, you can go back and back and back. What Solomon's saying, no, don't say, how come those days were better than these? You know why? Because they really weren't. Sure, there may be something about maybe last year when gas prices were better. There may be something about 10 years ago. But Solomon says, don't think that. Why? Look at what he says. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It doesn't come from a good place. So if it, do, if it doesn't come from wisdom, where does it come from? Foolishness. Because, you know, there really is a fine line between nostalgia and complaining. 
there is a razor-thin line between nostalgia and complaining. And think about it. We're often really good at revising our own history. The good old days probably weren't as good as you remember them. Because we only remember the good things about the good old days. We forget the stress that was there too. The pain. The awkwardness. The stomach bugs we had. The sickness. The car wrecks. The bad car. You remember how great it was to be miserable in high school? No. There are no good old days. Today is the good day. For this is the day that the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. And here's really the biggest problem, why it would, this, this question doesn't come from wisdom. Because God is sovereign over every day. God is sovereign over today. And to look back and go, oh, man, those days, is to look back and say, God, I don't like this day. I want to go back. And what good does that do us anyways? It does us no good. Verse 11 and 12 remind us, Wisdom's good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Money does protect us, gives you insurance. You got, you got reserves, you got savings, helps you get things done, protects you when the storms do come crashing to life. And he says, wisdom is like that, verse, 13, verse 12, in that it preserves the life of him who has it. So we don't ask that question because it doesn't come from wisdom. Wisdom preserves us. Wisdom protects us. Wisdom helps us navigate life under the sun. And what did we learn, the grand conclusion of this whole thing, verses 1 through 12, Solomon says, verse 13, consider the work of God. What? Verses 1 through 12, the house of mourning, the house of feasting, the rebukes that come. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The day of death and day of birth, these are not outside of God's hands. We don't walk into the house of mourning on accident. The former days leaving and the current days arriving are an accident. God does it all. And he says, you cannot straighten what he has bent. So God bends things. God, God makes things crooked. He takes my business and bends it to another way. He takes our country and he bends it to another way. He takes my life and he's, he's bending and he's moving it? Yes. And you can't straighten it. You walk the path with him. No one can win tug of war with God. This is why being quick to, be, quick to anger is dangerous because eventually you spill it over to God. That's the eventual conclusion. Whenever we sin against one another, we always sin against him. So Solomon invites us to consider and think about, listen, things don't happen outside of God's reach. Consider the work of God. Things don't happen out of his reach. He is the maestro. That's why he says in chapter 3, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Here's what Solomon's saying here. I think what he's showing us in verse 13 and now in verse 14. Look at verse 14. And the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one, prosperity, as well as the other, adversity, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What does that mean? Like it means you won't intuitively be able to figure it out. You must trust him. You won't be able to find it out on your own by, oh, because this happened, this happened, this. No, there's only one place to look. 
What Solomon's showing us with 13, consider the work of God, consider that God has made both of these days, is he's showing us our practical atheism. When we say things like, oh, that was a blessing in disguise. No, there's no disguise. You know what's funny about America? Is we say things like, oh, man, we're just blessed to not be persecuted. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus says. Blessed are the persecuted. We, flip, we have all these mixed messages. We say things like, oh, that was, just, that was just a God thing, which we only say about good things. We never say that about the cancer. We never say that about the car wreck. We never say that about the business being shut down. But the Bible says everything's a God thing. Nothing ha- happens outside of God's control. Oh, man, things just worked out. Nothing ever just works out. God has made one as well as the other. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, be glad, rejoice. Solomon says, really, everything's cooking, it's wonderful, it's great. Don't be sour, don't be gloom and doom, don't, don't be waiting for the other shoe to drop, just enjoy it. It is thoroughly Christian and God-glorifying to enjoy life, to enjoy basketball, to enjoy your kids, to enjoy what you have. And when the day of adversity hits, and in the day of adversity, consider. Notice he, wants, he says, think. Don't bring in your Christian knees. Think, consider this. God's made that one too. So in sickness and in suffering, don't count God out. He's there too. Jesus didn't fight back tears at the death of Lazarus. Our Lord cried. Our Lord suffered. So we can cry. We can suffer. But we don't count God out. There is no square foot in the universe where we can go where God is not in charge. And there is not a nanosecond of our lives where God is not at work. No matter what day we are in, prosperity or adversity, we can be assured that the end of the matter is better than the beginning. That's why you must believe those words. The end of the matter is better than the beginning. Because if, if you have believed in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is your Savior and that he paid for your sins and that the day of death he conquered, and that he rose from the dead, that he rose out of the house a morning, and that this isn't a, these days, there aren't a blessing in disguise because to be with Christ is far better. To live is Christ and to die is gain. The apostles believed that more than we do. Listen, Solomon's bringing eternity into our midst again because is not the day of your resurrection better than today? Do you really believe that you'll be risen from the dead? It can't just be Christianese to you. It must be your Christianity to you. Won't the day you're resurrected in a glorified body, a sinless body, and you being with Jesus and you being with all the saints from all of eternity, rejoicing in the new heavens and earth together, that will be better than our sorry lives today. The end is better than the beginning. The end is better than today. We must remember that we, that this universe, that God is at the center, that this is his world, we are his people, and we are in his will. And it's not the other way around. We think we're just kind of going about our lives and we just tack God on and it's great. That's not reality. Reality is God is at the center and we are following him. He is not following us. And when we realize, yes, this is God's world, this is God's universe, this is God's plan, and I am playing a part in his story as one of his children then life begins to make a lot more sense. But if you think you are at the center, this is your life, that this is your story, and everyone else is now playing a part in your story, you will be miserable. 
And if you believe that the end is better than the beginning, the trials, the suffering, the house of mourning remind us that there is a kingdom to come. And in this kingdom, there is no vanity. This kingdom is not haunted by the havel of life under the sun. As 1 Peter tells us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in the end, in this, in all of those things, all those things we just read, in this, you rejoice, though, though now for a little while, just a little while, if necessary. We don't know why it's necessary, but sometimes our suffering is necessary. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You're grieved but they're just a little while. Then grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the end, at when he descends out of those clouds and we're raised from the dead and we see him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Do you love him? Though you do not see him, you believe in him. Do you believe in him? And in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The trials do bring grief for a little while. This little while, the, the, these little sufferings and these trials, they are just a drop in the bucket that is our existence on, under this sun and then in our eternity to come where we have an inheritance, a future that's incredibly bright, that's Havel-proof, that's vanity-proof, that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And the outcome, the salvation of your souls. Yes, trials come. Cancer is scary. We have a lot of people at our church with cancer right now. Losing a job is a trial. A lot of people now losing their jobs. But listen, Solomon and Peter and Jesus, they're telling us, in the end, no evil thing wins. This is just a little while. In the end, no evil thing wins. He tells us in Revelation that we will see him and he will wipe away all the griefs and all the tears from our eyes. And we will walk into a new eternity that is perfect. And we win because he won. If you found salvation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for your sins, you now, right now, this moment, you really do have a living hope because he is alive. You have an imperishable inheritance because Christ himself is imperishable. He's been alive for 2,000 years now and is, will keep on running. You have something that lasts beyond the sun that's undefiled, unfading, and eternal. Solomon and Peter and the Lord of hosts invite us to believe that. And it's not a mixed message. Let's pray together.